Hey, uh, we are, if you, if you prefer to follow along in your Bibles, um, 1 Samuel 9 is where the bulk of our text is going to be from, with some, only a few references outside of that. Um, so you're more than welcome to turn there if you want to. All of the verses that we're going to be talking about tonight will be in the verse sheet that is in the back of your packet. So feel free, if you don't have one of those, to grab one uh, so that you can follow along with us. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the kingdom of God as it's being established in the promised land. Uh, first, through uh, Samuel, as he comes to establish himself as a prophet, one who is hearing from God for the first time in many years, uh, who is growing up in the temple or near the temple uh, where underneath the tutelage of Eli. And so, and then he is also a judge who is um, discerning people's issues and, and judging and also directing them and leading them and guiding them in holiness and so Samuel has been set up as this final judge in Israel's history. What we know as the final judge in Israel's history, what they at the time did not know was the last judge. But um, Samuel is this final judge, and he is leading them in holiness. He is God's appointed individual to do so. And he is taking on this sort of persona uh, granted by God as sort of a prophet, a priest-like character, and a judge or a, a, a king-like character. And we saw that he was the one that comes in, in spite of Samson's failings, in spite of Israel's failings, he's the one that comes in and is actually raised up by God to crush the Philistines and to get restore Israel back to the land and give them some sense of safety and security in the midst of uh, nations around that are threatening, not least of which would be the Philistines. But there's a problem because Samuel's getting older and he's, his sons are not really walking in his ways and yet they are really sort of next in line to take over the judgeship and so he grants judgeship to them and the people of Israel get wind of this and they're not at all happy about it and so they sit Samuel down and they say, listen, we like you. It's not you, it's us, really. Uh, we, need, we need somebody over us that's a little less like, well, your children. And so Samuel is obviously grieved by this, and he goes before the Lord, and the Lord says, listen, it's not you, it's me. So Samuel keeps getting told this over and over. You see this theme that it's not you, it's me. This time it's from God, which has a little bit more authority to it. He says, it's not you that they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. And so go ahead and give them everything that they want. Everything. Um, there was a time when I was a kid. I, you, when you're a child and Christmas rolls around, you always want to know what your Christmas gift is. And you always ask, what is it? Did you get me this? Did you get me that? What is it? What is it? What is it? Well, one year I had asked for a dirt bike. I was 10 years old and I asked for a dirt bike and I really wanted it really bad. A neighbor kid of mine ha had a dirt bike and I would always hear him riding it and I just wanted one so bad. And so I asked my dad for it and I just, I really, really wanted it. Um, so I was playing at a friend's house. This was a few days before Christmas 
And the friend and I were playing out in his yard, and he said, I saw your dad the other day, and he had something in the back of his truck. Did y'all get a new lawnmower or something? And I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And he immediately got the ESP that was things that were going on in my brain that, oh my goodness, this might be the dirt bike. And I was like, no, but I did ask for a dirt bike for Christmas. Do you know anything? And he was like, he immediately understood that. And he knew what was at stake was my Christmas gift. And he was like, I am not saying a word. I'm not saying anything. I'm shutting down. And I was like, oh, please tell me, please tell me, do you think it was a dirt bike? Could it possibly have been a dirt bike? Do you please tell me? And I kept begging him. He's like, no, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. I eventually wore him down because he was like two years younger than me. I will beat you up if you don't tell me. And, um, and so he told me, I, I think, yeah, it probably could have been that. It was very well, you could have been that. So I go home and I'm hunting and I notice then as I get home, everything started to make sense to me. My dad's shed keys had disappeared by the back door. They had gone missing and I didn't know where they were, and that was because that's where it was. And so I'd go hunting everywhere. I'm home by myself because we could do that when we were little back then. And so I'm opening the drawers to my dad's dresser and finally find the shed keys. And I run out to the shed, I unlock the shed, and there it is in all its glory, my dirt bike. And I really thought that is what I wanted, was to know what I got for Christmas. But December 25th rolled around, and Christmas morning came, and... That day was just really disappointing to me, right? Because as it turned out, I had got what I wanted and then only to realize it was not nearly as sweet as what I thought it was going to be. I don't know why I told you any of that, but um, (laughs) I'm sure it has something to do with tonight. Now, um, the children of Israel have wanted a king like all the rest of the nations. And as we talked about last week, there is an expectation that they will have a king. There's expectations all the way back into Moses, even in Abraham, promises that God made to Abraham that kings are going to come from him. There's an expectation that a king is going to come. Well, we know that's true because even in Genesis 3, there's the promise of a savior and that savior is going to be a king and that savior is Jesus. So we know for sure a king is coming. But even before that, we know David is on the horizon. The book of Ruth kind of points that out, that, there's, that David is coming. Even before Israel gets into all this commotion with Samuel asking for a king. And so, um, but the point is that the reason why Israel sins is not because they asked, but for two reasons. They wanted a king to become like the other nations. In other words, they were rejecting God as leader and appointer of kings over them. And then second, it was a timing issue. God had been preparing a king for them, but it was going to be God's king. It was going to be God's man. But they didn't want that. They wanted their own man. We want the timing to be ours. And so that's what we dealt with last week. Now, there's a couple of ways that you could look at this whole situation. One way is like uh, the open theists think about it. Open theism, we talked about it uh, probably more than a year ago. But open theism is the idea that God does not really know the future. He doesn't really have plans per se. He learns as he goes. And as man makes their decisions, it puts him in a reactionary position where he's reacting to the decisions that mankind makes and adjusting accordingly. 
And so you could look at this whole story from Genesis all the way through as a reactionary God, an open theistic God who is making decisions in reaction to the plans of men. And so we would go back to Adam if that were the case, and we would say God has put Adam and Eve on the earth to be his vice regents, to establish his kingdom and spread their domain around the world, and they sinned. And so God scratches his head, and he goes back to the drawing board, and he thinks, well, what am I going to do now? Look at the chaos of the world. Well, it's gotten so bad, I only see Noah over here. I'm just going to wipe everybody off and start over again. And so he does. And then Noah comes along, and Noah turns out to be kind of bad. And he says, you know what? I'm going to pick a guy that I think is going to be pretty good. So he isolates Abraham as that person, and he establishes a family. And then he gets, they end up in slavery. Well, okay, let me think about what I'm going to do now. I'm going to call them out. Moses is over there. Let me get him out of the wilderness and draw him out and then establish my kingdom with Israel and lead them in. But then they're rebellious, and they don't do what they're supposed to do. I'm going to kill off a generation of them. And then take them into the promised land, and on and on it goes as God is continuing to react. And what you end up with is at the end of the Old Testament, God saying, you know what? I've had it with you people. I can't do anything anymore. I'm just going to stop what I'm doing here, and I'm going to bring in Jesus and just make everything right and start over and just establish a different group of people in the church. And so you could think of God's plan that way. I think you can tell that I don't think of God's plan that way. I think instead you can look at this as God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. That along the way, after the fall of Adam and Eve, how much sense would it have made for Jesus to come along some years after Adam dies and go, here I am, going to die on the cross for you. Everybody would go, what? I don't understand anything that you're talking about. Here I am, prophet, priest, and king. What is a prophet? Instead, over the years of Israel's history, God is establishing his plan um, through all of this, even through Israel's blatant neglect of his word, and even in Israel's rebellion and stubbornness. He's taking all of it, intending all of it, using all of it to demonstrate exactly what Christ is going to do and, and, and why and establish those reasons. And we're going to see that tonight, I hope, in a bunch of wandering donkeys, uh, which is sometimes what I can be. Um, so first what we see um, is Saul comes onto the scene in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, and Saul is presented by the author of 1 Samuel from several different perspectives at the beginning of his story. And it, he draws some parallels with Samuel. So Saul, as a person, has some very interesting, I think, similarities to Samuel. First, what we see, one of the parallels that's being drawn in the book of Samuel, in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, to the character Samuel, or between Samuel and Saul, are some naming puns. Now, we use puns slightly different than the Old Testament uses puns. We use puns for humor. Uh, so Blake, I think, is probably the king of puns. Well, he's more like the dad of puns. You know, it's like the dad, dad jokes. I know Vicky likes some good puns. I love good puns myself. The Bible is actually chock full of puns. Tons of naming puns, too. But the point in Hebrew of puns is not really humor. Not always, anyway. 
as much as it is to underscore a point, to help you understand what is being said exactly about these characters. And it, it brings some of the truths of the text to light as those puns float up to the top. And the first is in these naming puns between Samuel's name and Saul's name. Now, I'm going to use a term I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with. Uh, Hannah presents the etymology of the name of Samuel. What is the etymology? What is etymology? What is it? Yeah, the source of a name. It's the or the source of a word. It's a breakdown of a word, what it means, where it comes from. But the etymology of the name Samuel is told to us all the way back in 1 Samuel 1.20. Somebody read that for us. It's in our verse packet. All right, she tells us, or the text tells us, what the name Samuel means, or what it's intended, the reason she names him Samuel. What is the reason she names him Samuel? Yeah, asks. She asks of Yahweh. Um, The name uh, Samuel, or in Hebrew would be Shemuel, Shem is name. Uh, you is a word that, or a little suffix that makes it personal. So it's uh, his name. And then L is God. His name is God. Now, what is, I don't, so then she says the reasoning is I have asked of God. Well, the name, the word uh, Shem for name sounds a lot like the word ask. Shaul. You hear that? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, Saul. So what, what you're going well, to see in just a second. So she says, because it's, it's, it's kind of, we do similar things today, but we'll change the spelling of a name or we'll change the slight pronunciation of a name and you know, it will be like my wife always is is forever correcting people. There's Andrea, there's Andrea, there's Andrea. There's lots of different pronunciations of her name, and she's Andrea. It's Andrea, you know. And so she's always doing. It. We do similar things like that uh, phonologically with our, with the sounds of the names, but and they do very similar things. So for uh, for them to for her to establish this uh, etymology, she just gives it to us. She tells us, "I like the name Samuel. I like the name Shemuel." But I'm doing that after the word uh, Shaul, which means to ask. So I'm playing off that word to ask. Well, the author of 1 Samuel is keen on letting us know Hannah's reason for naming her son Samuel is because she asks of Yahweh. And what does Yahweh do? He hears and he provides. And incidentally, who is Samuel? Well, he's the first person in Israel in a long time to actually hear the voice of God. He grows up in the temple or near the tabernacle, and he is uh, serving as a priest. He becomes a seer in the land and guides the people authentically in righteousness. 
He exposes their sin and leads them to righteousness. That's how God answers her prayer. She asks of God and he answers. He responds. And so she names her kid, I ask of Yahweh, right? So Samuel. Now, in chapter 9, the people ask of God. And he gives them a king named Ask. Shaul, Saul's name, literally means asked. So the, the, the change here that's happening is Hannah asked of God to give her a child and he gave her not just a child, but one that would lead the nation in righteousness. But then as the nation got haughty, they decided they knew best and so they asked for a king. And so God says, because you've rejected me, I'll give you exactly what you ask for. What we talked about last week of them rejecting God's timing and usurping his authority to establish a king. See, they didn't ask God for a king. They demanded a king from Samuel. We want to be like the other nations. And so this is an example of God telling them exactly what their Christmas gift is going to be. Here it is. You get to know. Now tell me in 40 years how satisfied you are with ask as your king. Okay, well, it turns out not very. Um, so that's one thing. There's this naming thing that's going on as a parallel between Samuel and Saul. But then there's another, the second is that there's this um, uh, theme of adoption that presents itself a couple of times. We notice that Samuel's story is very, uh, Samuel and then transition to Saul is very similar from Eli's transition to Samuel. Eli had two different defiantly sinful sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But uh, as the line would go, Eli is going to serve as priest, and then who would serve as priest next? Hophni and Phinehas. But it turns out they're wicked, and they don't serve the Lord in righteousness, and they actually turn the temple into a a cult of Baal, and so they're, they're not serving the Lord at all. They're They're actually fornicating with women that would come into the temple. And so that's not good. And so uh, what happens to all three of them, Eli, uh, Hophni, and Phinehas, they all three die on the same day. And Samuel, who is raised up under Eli's tutelage, takes over in Eli's line, effectively becoming like an adopted son. He's continuing on the line of priests, which is kind of, Changing the lineage, if you will. Um, so then what happens with, uh, with Samuel? Well, just as Samuel was the replacement of Hophni and Phinehas, Saul replaced Joel and Abijah, who are Samuel's sons. Because Joel and Abijah are, turns out, not any better than Hophni and Phinehas, really. They're leading the, country, the, the, the nation in, in wickedness. And so... Um, by virtue of Saul's appointment to lead the people, he effectively becomes kind of the adopted son, if you will, of Samuel. So there's this kind of adoption theme 
that begins to take place as one successor is uh, given the reins, if you will, um, outside of the sons. Uh, questions about that? that or anything that we've talked about so far? All right. So here, but then as we get into Saul's story, there's some things that stand out that immediately should make some red flags appear. Now, this is, these are one of the more difficult things to do, I think, when you're reading through the scriptures, because honestly, it would probably be great if we just sat down and just read the Old Testament all in one setting, because you would start to see some things that you hadn't seen before. But not many of us are going to sit down and read through the book of Judges and then immediately read through the book of 1 Samuel. But we'd probably benefit by doing so because if we did, we would see that uh, the book of, of Judges ends how? Well, how does it end? Destroying the Benjamites. In what town? Do you remember? You'll find out in a minute. So... What, it, what we find then as we get to Saul's story is that Saul is a Benjamite. Benjaminite. We see that in 1 Samuel 9.1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerar, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. All right? So... Being from the tribe of Benjamin is hardly a commendation, especially following hot on the heels of Judges 19 to 21, where the Benjaminites are the ones that massacre this girl that look a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah and are virtually obliterated by the other 11 tribes, or the other 10, 10 tribes, as it were. So that's, that's a problem. But not only was Saul a Benjaminite, he actually lives in the town of Gibeah, which is the epicenter of where all of that event takes place at the end of the book of Judges. So just think about that for a second. Your king, the one appointed as leader over you, the one who, as we find out, is going to be given essentially the status of prophet, priest, and king in Samuel's place, is a guy from the town where all of that took place. Imagine a spiritual leader rising up in this world from Las Vegas or New Orleans. <laughs> we would probably kind of take a step back and go, wait a minute, <laughs> what kind of person is this, right? Only much greater than that, okay? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, virtually. So he's from the town of Gibeah. You see that in 1 Samuel uh, 10, 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But go back to Judges 19, 13 to 15. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw... This is the story of the... Of basically the episode of the story. Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and they went their way and the sun went down uh, on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So that's how the story begins there at Gibeah which turned south in a hurry. But here is Saul, the man who is appointed as prophet, priest, and king effectively, 
and he is from this town. So immediately, as readers of the story, we're going, wait a second, I know Gibeah. I know the Benjaminites. Where do I know that name from? Flipping back, seeing Judges 19 to 21. Oh, that's where I know that name from. This is not going to turn out very good. All right, so immediately we're getting heart palpitations as we start to read this. And then, um, despite being from uh, Benjamin, Saul's father, Kish, seems to be a mighty man, it says, a man of wealth, essentially. So he has apparently prospered from the depleted resources of the town. Remember, uh, in, the, in the story, in Judge, at the end of Judges, the town is, it, the Benjaminites are desecrated. It's like 600 men remain. That's about it from thousands. And so they are, their, well, their resources are completely depleted. Well, apparently Kish's family, Kish or Kish's family, rise to prominence in the area and are, are pretty wealthy. And so Saul comes from good stock, at least uh, wealth-wise. Uh, it turns out that Saul is also... Ladies, watch out. Saul is choice, a choice and handsome man. Uh, he is head and shoulders above the rest. All right? He is tall, he is dark, and he is handsome. Now, why is that really important? <laughs> well, uh, he, uh, he can fight all their battles. Fight all their battles. Right? Um, this whole story is sort of latent with irony because it's like God is giving them just the perfect depiction in their minds of everything they think they want. They, they want a guy to fight their battles and oh, I got just the guy for you. He's so tall. All the people, all the ladies are going to look at him and go, he is strong, he is big, he is everything that you really want. In comparison, as I mentioned last week, to God's man who's, in the wing, who's waiting in the wings some years down the road, who is small and ruddy, and, but boy can he fight. Kill lions with his bare hand. All right. Um, in the meantime, the guy that they think they want is going to hide by the luggage. Uh, which is, that's hilarious in and of itself. Um, now, what happens, though, at the very beginning of Saul's story is so funny. It's, it's uh, it, I, thi- I think, I hope I'm reading this right, I think it's really meant to make us laugh. Because <coughs> here is uh, Saul, and how does his story begin? He's the son of this pretty wealthy guy who has a lot of livestock. So the assumption is that Saul is... Uh, helping his dad. He's going to keep watch over his dad's flock. That's what boys do when they're raised under their father who's a, you know, a rancher, as it were, or have heads of cattle, or in this case, donkeys. And since uh, he, the shepherd imagery is pretty common imagery when it comes to kings, uh, you have Saul who's appointed to keep track of a large stock of animals, we presume, because he's the son of this guy who owns a lot of uh, animals. But what we see him doing at the very beginning is he's lost track of everybody. He has no idea where, they're, where they are. He can't find them. In comparison to David, we know when Samuel comes to anoint him as king, goes through all the boys and they're... Not, 
they're all standing in front. He said, well, none of these are, are them. Is, do you have somebody else? Oh, yeah, I have David, but he's, he's watching the sheep. So you've got this parallel that's already being set up from the very beginning. Here's Saul who can't keep track of his donkeys. There's another word for that, and there would be lots of jokes and puns if we did that, but we won't. Uh, Saul can't keep track of his donkeys, and he's, he's so it, it speaks already to his future fa- or his failure as king, his future failure as king. It's supposed to go to the next, oh, it did, okay. Um, so it's, it speaks already to his future failure as king, the fact that he can't keep track of these donkeys. But not only that, the donkey, now we know the donkey is kind of a humorous little animal and a little kind of runt and all these kind of th- things. Uh, and we think of the horse as a more prominent animal, some, something that, oh, you own a bunch of horses, that's, that's better. Um, the donkey was actually a, a, a beast of the king, like of kings. Uh, you had to be pretty wealthy to own a donkey. A horse would have been things that kings also owned, but not, not personally. They wouldn't ride the, the horse personally because that would mean that they're going into battle. Now, they might ride the horse if they're going into battle, but horses were used for battle. Donkeys were used by the rich to tote all their wealth and carry all their things. And so they were the beasts of kings, and you can see that in a couple of scriptures point to that. But um, So Jesus is going to ride in to town on a donkey, which has a, a double-pointed irony to it, because not only is it, it it's a beast of burden, and by the time Jesus gets in there, it's not so much looked at as a, as a kingly uh, donkey, but it's prophesied in that sense, right? That a king is going to ride in on a donkey. So I've lost my screen here, so I can't see. There it goes. Um, all right, so it's the beast of kings. Now, um, Saul goes, takes his servant, and he goes and is looking. He's appointed by his dad to go looking for these donkeys that have wandered off. And so they end up eventually in the land of Zuph. And we see that in 1 Samuel 9, 4, and 5. Who will read that for me? And they passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alam, but they were not there. <coughs> then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And they came to the land of Zuph. Zal said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now, so they end up in the land of Zuf, which sounds like a, doc, a place Dr. Seuss would write about in his books. But they end up in the land of Zuf, and there, wouldn't you know it, Saul turns to his servant and he says, You know what? We've been searching for these donkeys forever, and we haven't found them, and now it's getting to the point we've been gone for so long, my dad's going to going to worry about us and going to think that we've, we've gone missing. And so, um, so he says to his servant, you know, let's just, let's just turn and go back. But his servant's not having any of it. His servant actually hears that, wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, Samuel happens to be in the town that day. Man. So he tells uh, he tells Saul, look, I, I know that there's somebody here, um, and wouldn't you know it that his servant actually has a coin, enough money to pay the servant, the, the seer, the prophet Samuel, to, to tell them what they need to know, where these donkeys are. 
You see that in 1 Samuel 9, 6 to 10. Somebody read that for me. So wouldn't you know it, Samuel ends up being in town, just happens to be there that day, at the same day that, that Samuel and his servant, I mean Samuel, uh, Saul and his servant are there uh, looking for their donkeys. And um, so the, the servant also happens to have with him the, enough money to pay the seer to get a, 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 a help, as it were. Well, it turns out that the search for the donkeys and the stopping at Zuf and ultimately the meeting of Samuel was due to the divine providence of God. And we know that uh, because of the verses that are given to us, or the, the, of what is told to us in the story of Samuel. But first I want to read uh, two quotes. One, the first is by Alexander McLaren, who is talking about this passage. And he says this, Think of the chain of ordinary events which brought Saul to the little city. The wandering of the drove of donkeys. The failure to get on their tracks. The accident of being in the land of Zuf when he got tired of the search. The suggestion of the servant. And behind all these, and working through them, the will and hand of God thrusting this man, all, all unconscious, along a path which he knew not. Then Dale Davis says this, It all seems so casual. Who would know it was planned? It looks like, a, like we are dealing simply with what appears rather than what is ordained. How do we know losing the donkeys and finding a kingdom was God's doing because of an intrusion into our story. And the intrusion occurs at chapter 9, verse 15 to 17. And that's in your verse packet as well. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel uh, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. The Lord makes clear 
All of this is due to his providence. These things are coming about by his hand. The donkeys going wandering through the wilderness, their inability to find him ending up in the land of Zuf, where Samuel is, where God brings them to together. Now, Samuel, uh, oh, by the way, here's what the land looks like. So this, if you want, if your donkeys ever go missing, okay, and you want to know how not to find them, this is how not to find them. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a good plan, I think. This is how I would do it. Uh, they start off in Gibeah, here, we think at least, and they go all the way up to uh, the hill country of Ephraim. They go around. They're making a big circle, you see, because they're thinking, well, let's just trap them. Let's see if we can go all the way around. So they go up and around. They come to Shalisha. They don't find them there. They come to Sha'alim. They don't find them there. And this is all told to us in the text, by the way. Uh, and then eventually they come right down here. They're very close to Gibeah. They're here in the land of Zuf, and this is where uh, the prophet uh, meets them. But there's something interesting about the way they encounter one another, the way uh, Samuel encounters Saul and the story, the way it's set up. Um, Saul meets a woman at a well, and he tells to her, he asks her if they know, or the, the two asked the woman if they know where the prophet is, where the seer is, and she says, oh yeah, he's in town today, and he's coming to do a sacrifice, but you better hurry because he's about to start the sacrifice. And you know how preachers get once they start going about talking, they're never going to stop. And so, um, so you better go up there and get to him before, they, before he starts talking or you'll never get him to shut up. And so uh, they, they go up to find Samuel, and before they can really say much to him, or they ask, have you seen uh, the seer? And he says, I'm the seer. And they say, oh, this is good. And before they can even say anything else, uh, Samuel tells them, don't worry about your donkeys. They've already been found. And I guess that's sort of like a, oh, he is the seer. You know, it's like an impressive, um, (laughs) prove it to us (laughs) sort of deal. Um, But anyway, uh, they realize that they are with the seer. And what happens then is Samuel, who's coming into the town, what we know is to do a worship service. He's going to have, they're going to have some form of a, a, a dinner first, or they're going to sit down and have a, a, a dinner. And Samuel, who already knew that Saul was coming, had invited 30 men to share the meal, at which Saul, it turns out, was going to be the guest of honor, even though he didn't know that. And not only is Saul the guest of honor, but he gets the favored portion. Somebody read 1 Samuel 9, 22 to 23. Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. Now, um, a lot of people have pointed out, and I think this is probably pretty true, that most of the time you see an encounter in the Old Testament where there's a woman at the well that they meet, it usually ends in a marriage. That, that woman usually becomes the bride. <laughs> and uh, that's certainly true of Isaac and several others in the Old Testament. But um, here the irony is that the woman doesn't actually become the bride. Israel becomes the bride to Saul. 
Saul ends up being married right there in the ceremony, in, in sort of a ceremony that's coming in chapter 10, where he's going to be anointed king of Israel and married to effectively his bride Israel. Um, whether that's all intended to be there or not, I'm not sure, but uh, it sure does preach good. Um, so uh, there's a, um, essentially a feast that's set up uh, that where this sort of feast of the kingdom is celebrated and it's uh, the, the revelation of Israel's leader that's about to be appointed king over them. And Saul is given uh, the leg. But not merely is he given the leg of the sacrifice, he's actually given the priestly portion. It says, so the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said... See what has kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now, the further irony here is that Samuel is coming into town to offer a, uh, a peace offering. That should say peace offering. I may have missed that. Did I skip one? Okay, I skipped one. You'll forgive me. Um, Samuel was offering a peace offering. That's the next blank there. Samuel was offering a peace offering, which included a meal. So we see that, we see at least a reference to that in 913. Uh, as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. Remember, he's the priest. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. And so they go up. Samuel is coming, and presumably he, as the priest who's offering the peace offering, will get the priestly portion, but he's not the one that actually takes the priestly portion. It's Saul that takes the priestly portion, because Samuel has left it aside for him specifically. And so Saul, this is the first indicator that Saul is going to be over the people, and Saul I don't know if he has his, his wits about him and he understands totally what's going on, but surely he has to get a little bit of kind of nervousness in his stomach. He's just a ranch hand, a very tall ranch hand, but he's just a ranch hand. And all of a sudden, he goes from looking for his dad's donkeys to now being given the priestly portion of the sacrifice. So he's about to be priest, essentially. Well, in 10-1, he's king. Because the oil gets poured over his head and he's anointed. And then, wouldn't you know, the spirit rushes upon him and he starts prophesying. And people ask, is Saul a seer? So all of these gifts are coming to him all at once. And, uh, or, or pretty much all at once. And so we know also from Leviticus 7, 33 and 34 that these portions are set aside for the priest. These are the priest's offerings. And so um, these, are, these belong to the priest. Um, but then, uh, giving Saul the thigh, it thus announced that the prince was receiving an office analogous to the priest's offering. I'm quite positive. I've missed some blanks, I think. But it should go peace offering, priest. Now the next one down here at the last bullet point is priest's. And then anointing with oil also highlighted the fact that um, we, we, we often associate 
uh, oil with the king, which it is. The king will be anointed as David will be anointed. But the first ones to receive the anointing in the Old Testament were the priests. And so it further confirms that he is priest and king, and then he gets the rush of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week, um, to see that he's going to actually be a seer as well. But what happens is, not only have we associated this with kings, but the priests were first the anointed ones, or the Christ. So Saul becomes the first king, who is also the Christ, as it were, over the people, um, which is what Christ means, is anointed one. Um, Questions about any of that? Yes, go ahead. Yes, so Judges ends at about 1084-ish, or sometime shortly after 1084. The beginning where Saul is anointed, we think, is right at 1051. Okay, so you can kind of get a thing there. Saul is going to reign for 40 years, I believe, so that like, is like 1011, I think, is where, he, uh, where David gets anointed, and then it's another 11 years before David actually ends up taking the throne, and then he reigns for 40 years, so... Um, Other questions? Man, is that it? Um, so as we think about this passage and what it tells us, I can't help but see that in spite of Israel's obstinacy, their hard-heartedness, their rebellion. Not at any point do they frustrate the plans of God. Not at any point does he go back to the drawing board. Not at any point does he think to himself, well, what am I going to do now? I think that's incredibly encouraging. I have no idea why someone who saw God as open theists do would ever worship Him. Why would you serve a God who has no idea what's coming next? Why would you serve a God who is constantly reacting to mankind as if we are God? There's only two ways to see God. One is completely reactionary to us and serving us. And the other is completely sovereign and worthy of worship. And I think what the text points to us is so much the latter. And where I think we see perhaps glimpses of God not knowing what to do, I think the problems with us and our way of understanding the text. But I think it's encouraging for me, especially as I live out my faith, to know that no matter how many of these things catch me off guard, none of them catch God off guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, how grateful we are that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that many are the plans of men, but you direct our steps. We are told time and time again that you are sovereign. We resist it. We reject it. 
we think we want different. But so often, as is Israel's case, as is our case, we don't really know what we want. We're grateful that you don't always give us what we want, but you have given us what we need. You have given us in Christ the true king, king that you had planned from before the foundation of the world. A king that is worthy of praise and adoration and worship. And a king that set aside his throne and bore a cross on our behalf. How incredible that sacrifice is for us who do not deserve it. May we live forever in awe and worship of the one who gave everything to us. In Jesus' name, amen.